Jelly of the Airy, Joey of the Airy, cried when the expos left Park Jerry. If Tia sends the pie, he's the cherry. Joey of the Airy likes Toronto pizza better than in Montreal. Loves the Alouettes, loves Canadian football. Joey of the Airy, Joey of the Airy, if Tia sends 690, he's a good fairy. At the station, he's the big man like Refrigerator Perry. Joey Alfieri produces Mel Nick's show and does Sports Saturday too. Was king of his high school prom. That's true. Play-by-play -play voice of the club de foot. Trois devant, always forward understood. Joey Alfieri, Joey Alfieri, cried in the expos. Left part Jerry. If Tia sends the pie, he's the cherry. Joey Alfieri, Joey. Ah, thank you, Mr. Dan Byrne, for bringing us in. Good Saturday morning. It's Saturday Sports on TSN 690, as you probably heard in the uh, opening song there. And Jimmy G is with me. He's heard that for the first time live on the radio. Yes, it is Saturday Sports on TSN 690. Welcome, welcome, everybody. We've got a busy show to get to. We will be talking. Plenty of Montreal Canadiens. Uh, we will be chatting Habs. We'll be breaking down the result and previewing tonight's game uh, against the Vancouver Canucks with Erin Ambrose. She's a friend of the show. She's a member of Canada's national women's hockey team and the PWHPA. We'll also be talking CF Montreal and Canadian men's national team Olympic qualifying soccer uh, with Paul Vance from MountRoyalSoccer.com. And we'll also be previewing, or not previewing, but recapping the start of NFL free agency with former NFL scout Russ Landy, who's been on the program before. Uh, you can get in touch with the program a couple different ways. You can text us at 11690. You can also tweet me at Joey Alfieri. We'll get to our Saturday sports question of the day uh, in just a little bit. But I do want to start with the Canadians losing in overtime to the Canucks last night. I've been telling you that I'm rooting for overtime Every single night, and I got my wish last night, for the second game in a row, the Canadians were able to force an extra frame thanks to a late goal. You couldn't help but feel a little happy for Nick Suzuki. He's been struggling over the last couple of weeks, and that six-on-four power play goal in the last minute of regulation ended a nine-game goalless drought for him. Unfortunately for Suzuki, things didn't go as well in overtime. To his credit, he stood or sat in front of reporters and took the blame for the JT Miller goal when there's no way he deserved all of the blame. But the end result was another OT loss for Montreal, and to make matters worse, they've had quality scoring chances in back-to-back -back overtimes only to watch the other team go down the ice, come back, and score right after they whiffed. The coach, the coach has changed. Some of the personnel has changed in overtime. So what's left to do? It's an interesting question because I was on the post-game show with uh, Mitch Gallo last night, and we kind of had a difference of opinion on the the, the way the overtime, I, I think, gets rolled out. I, I don't really have an issue with the strategy. I think you heard Nick Suzuki last night, and, and guys have said it throughout you know, this this old this over six now in overtime. Guys have said that it's pretty standard the way you defend and approach an overtime. Yes, some teams have more skill, some teams have less. And the Canadians, in terms of individual talent, they don't have a McDavid, a Marner, a Matthews, a Drysidle, a Dubois, Ehlers, and so on. But uh, what they do have is a, a bunch of good players uh, that can be difference makers at time. 
at times. So uh, I don't know that overtime is going to get a whole lot better. But like we said, they've changed the personnel to a certain point because they've gone with three forwards quite a bit under Dominic Ducharme. And then they've also changed the coach. They went from Claude Julien to Dominic Ducharme. And you're not seeing, you know, as we said, you're not seeing Ben Sherrod as much, especially now because he's injured. But even when he was healthy under Ducharme, he didn't really get out in overtime after the first the first game. Um, same for Weber. It's not really getting out in overtime anymore. So they are rolling with three forwards. I think the approach is, or the strategy in overtime isn't the problem. Right against Winnipeg, you had that great Denode pass to Jeff Petrie, quality scoring chance. Hellebuck makes a good save. They go the other way, and Ehler scores. Last night, Josh, uh, Josh Anderson had the breakaway set up by a great play in the defensive zone by Jonathan Drouin. I think he stripped Quinn Hughes in the Montreal end, sends a pass forward. Anderson's able to skate, catch up to it, go in on a breakaway, and he missed the net. So you've had opportunities to end the game. I do think what needs to change is the mentality. It's you've got to go out and you've got to embrace the attacking element of three on three overtime because there, there's nothing else to change at this point, right? You've done everything else. So why not change the mentality? Why not change um, your thought process going into overtime? And this is the debate. If you if you didn't catch it on on the post game show live last night after the game, this is the debate that Gallo and I had. Uh, his point, and it's a hundred percent factual, is that Dano and Byron starting overtime didn't directly lead to JT Miller's goal, so they can't be blamed for that. And and he's right; they're on the bench watching this unfold. They're not on the ice. They're not the ones who got beat. But I think sending those two guys out to start an overtime and Dano's been on the, uh, he started overtimes. I think he started at least, you know, two thirds of, of the overtimes at the very least. I think what that does is, and with Paul Byron out there as well, who, and I like Paul Byron, I have no problem if he gets into overtime a little bit later on in the frame, but I think you're sending out the wrong message to your team and you're sending out the message to the other side that you're there for the taking. You're going to try to play possession first, which is fine. But then you're not going to do a whole lot for the next 45, 50, 60 seconds, even if you do have the puck. And that's kind of what's gone on the last two games in particular. You look at the way it's all played out and the Canadians have had possession and Phil Deneau, I mean, there was nearly a disastrous moment on that opening shift last night in his own end when he gave the puck away, but ended up winning it back just a couple seconds later. But I think you're sending out the wrong message to your players. And for sure, it's definitely weighing on them. You can tell. I mean, Jeff Petrie admitted to making the mistake in the Winnipeg overtime, said that he shouldn't have called for the puck in the offensive zone when right before Phil Deneau gave it to him, and he's you know swarmed by three Jets, and he loses the puck, and they go the other way, and, and Winnipeg scores. And then last night, I think if you speak to Josh Anderson, yeah, that's a long time by hockey standards. That's a long time to be closing in on 1v1 against the goalie. And I don't know that Josh Anderson's going to miss the net on a breakaway a whole bunch of other times. If you know, if you'd have him do that a hundred times, I think he'd probably hit the net ninety nine times, and he'd score on a bunch of those, obviously. But there is some overthinking 
And last night, the coach came out after the game and said that that the Canadians need to have possession in order to be dangerous because their top guys, their offensive guys who are good, they're not the fleetest of foot and they don't necessarily all create with speed. So in order for them to be effective, they need to have the puck. And, and I mean, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to dispute that. I'm not stupid. I realize that what he's saying is a hundred percent right, but is it really the end of the world if you throw Nick Suzuki out there to win the opening faceoff and you have three forwards out there to start, or even if you have them with Jeff Petrie, right? Like Jeff Petrie's been the Canadian's MVP so far this season. I have no problem with him starting overtime, not by any stretch, even if he did make, you know, even if he admitted to making the mistake against Winnipeg. But is it the end of the world if for, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds, Josh Anderson, Nick Suzuki, and Jeff Petrie have to defend. Like, can Je- can Josh Anderson not win a puck battle in three on three overtime, or can Josh Anderson, you know, not strip a Canucks player in over? And look, I- and I realize that last night when J.T. Miller scores, he goes around to Tar and he makes he makes Nick Suzuki look foolish. And those are three forwards on the ice. I get that, but the thing is, I'm willing to live with the defensive shortcomings in three-on-three overtime that three forwards give you. If that's the way you lose, that's the way you lose. I'm fine with it. I'm good. You went down swinging at the very least. But this mentality that you need to have Deneau and Byron out there, and it hasn't worked at all this season, especially with Phil Deneau on the ice, it just it's time to go in a different direction. It's time to try something different. And again, if you go the full five minutes in overtime or you go four minutes in overtime, I'm fine with Dano and Byron eventually getting a shift. Like overtime can be taxing on some guys, especially if it's played uh, the wild way that it's intended to be played. But I just it's 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 the repetition. It's it's the same thing coming out and just banging your head against the wall over and over and over and over and over again. It's just it, it's too much, and I don't get it. I don't get why you'd keep starting the overtime period this way. So did Byron and Deneau out there directly result in the Canadians losing that game? No, not directly. But I do think that in the, you know, if you look at the big picture, the mentality is definitely part of the problem. And the lack of confidence is also part of the problem. And I believe it was Herb Zerkowski of the Montreal Gazette last night who asked Dominic Ducharme about how much overtime is weighing uh, on the Canadians players. And this is what Dominic Ducharme had to say after last night's 3-2 overtime loss uh, to the Vancouver Canucks. It is mental. I mean, um, but, you know, what we need is to bury one and get that over with right and you know we do that tonight probably everyone's talking about what a character team we are and coming back and tying the game with one and if we did the same in vancouver you know everyone would be yeah what a comeback it was yeah i mean we can play the what if josh anderson scores game for sure we can do that and that definitely changes things but i think even if josh anderson buries that chance you're still staring one and five in overtime in the face. And if this season has taught us anything, it's that the Canadians are going to go into overtime again at some point and lose. So 
I think the most important thing that needs to change at this point, because you've changed a lot of the other things, like we said, is the mentality. You've got to come out and you have to want to, yes, have the puck and win the opening possession and control the puck, which they have done of late anyway. But you also have to be that you have to have that attacking mindset, that mindset that we're going to go out there and we're going to get it. And yes, sometimes we're going to have a great scoring opportunity. We're going to whiff on or we're going to miss the net. It's going to go the other way and it's going to end up in the back of our net. But you know what? That's okay. Because at a certain point, if you're the Canadians, you'll be able to tell yourself that, yes, being aggressive, we're going to win and we're going to collect that extra point sometimes. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. I have no idea. But what I know for sure is that it's not working right now with whatever their approach is. So it's time to change the mentality in overtime. Also, um, you keep hearing that it's a gimmick, that overtime three-on-three is a gimmick, and that there's no three-on-three overtime in the playoffs. Okay, cool. Have the Canadians clinched the playoff spot? Is is there something I'm not aware of? Like, I think the Canadians are going to be in, but... When I pull up the standings this morning, there's absolutely no reason for Montreal to feel secure in that fourth playoff spot in the North Division. Like, you've given away six points in overtime. You've given away another three in a shootout. So you can sit here and call it a gimmick till you're blue in the face. That's fine. I personally, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it's just a really important part of the game now that you need to find a way to be good at or at least mediocre at. And it's costing you right now. You know, if you had half those points, even if you had four or five of those points out of nine, it makes a significant difference. And again, I, I realize the Canadians don't have, they're, they're built, the way they're built on depth and their ability to supposedly roll four lines, although right now I think they might have to roll three, um, is... You know, you're not going to have that high-end elite talent like some of the other teams that we spoke about before. So I realize that more often than not, going into an overtime, Montreal is going to be outmatched by whoever the other team they're playing against is. That, that's just the reality of the way this roster is constructed. And yes, it's easy for us to go out there and say, hey, win the game in regulation. But I think that even if you do go to overtime, there's no reason for you to be 0-6. Like, you can stumble into an extra point or two somewhere along the line. Do I think that eventually, look, we're in the second half of the season, but do I think that eventually some of these chances are going to start going in in overtime? Yeah, I, I think the Canadians are going to figure it out eventually. Like, I don't think they'll be perfect in overtime. And there's a lot to be positive about. It's a shame that we have to sit here and talk about overtime um, because it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous that this is a, a point, a talking point, seemingly, you know, every second, third or fourth night. But until they figure it out, unfortunately, it is going to be a talking point. And it's something that's going to be really important for them. So, look, I think not all hope is lost, but they need to find a way to settle things down, get their minds right in overtime. And they need to just make sure that they don't drop any more points because you can look at it and say, yes, they've picked up X amount of points by forcing overtime in the last couple. That's great. But the reality is every game is a North division game. And I don't care who's going to be in the playoffs and who you think is not going to be in the playoffs. 
I don't know what the playoffs are going to look like. So maybe I'm allowed to have fans. Maybe I'm not. I, I have no idea. But I want to make sure that I have home ice advantage just in case. So blowing overtime points to Winnipeg is just as important as blowing overtime points to Ottawa in my mind. It doesn't really matter because you're giving other teams the opportunity to make up ground. So last night, for example, yes, you're able to steal a point late in the game on the Suzuki equalizer. For That's fantastic. But the thing is, Vancouver closed the gap by another point last night. Calgary beat Toronto. They're behind you too. And Toronto's in a much better spot than you are standings-wise. So the Flames were able to close the gap again by a point last night. So you can find overtime. You can think that it's a gimmick. You can think that it doesn't matter because once you get into the playoffs, there's no three-on-three overtime. You got to make sure you get there first. And right now, if the Canadians were to miss the playoffs, I think that costs a lot of people their jobs. And I also think that, you know, the easy thing to do is to look back and say, well, you dropped the ball quite a bit in overtime. And hopefully it doesn't come down to that. I'd like, you know, I'd like to see the the Canadians have success. I, you know, I think it's better for everybody when the Canadians are playing in the playoffs. We got a little bit of a taste of that in the bubble uh, last year in August. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And I don't know how far the Canadians can go. I don't know if they'll get in for sure, but what I do know is this fan base has been through a lot of lows over the last little while, and I do think that this group is good enough to make the playoffs, so hopefully uh, they're able to figure that out and they can they can get this straightened out, get their game overall straightened out, because I didn't think they were terrible last night. I realized that, you know, I think it was a caller on the post-game show brought up that uh, they had two wins in their last seven games under Dom Ducharme. Sure. The second period wasn't good. I thought the Canadians had a decent start. They had a lot of pushback in the third period again. And yeah, of course, like you want the Canadians to play a solid 60 minutes night in, night out. But there's another team out on the ice. Like That's the problem. And everybody or most of the teams in the division are fighting for their playoff lives here. Everything's kind of condensed. So Montreal's five points out of first place. And they're a point or two points away from not being in the playoffs at all. So things, even though you're halfway into the season, things are still pretty condensed. So that's why it's just, it's key to not make these points slip away. It's Saturday Sports on TSN 690. Uh, Joey Alfieri with Jimmy G with you till one o'clock, breaking down all things Montreal Canadiens. We will be talking a little NFL free agency just after 1135 with former NFL scout Russ Landy. He'll join us on the program. Uh, We will be talking soccer. With Paul Vance of MountRoyalSoccer.com, the CF Montreal squad was able to open up their practice facility uh, for the first time in about a year. Uh, so they've been training at uh, Maddie Victorin out in the East End. Paul Vance was there for a couple of the training sessions. We'll talk to him about that. And uh, Aaron Ambrose of the Canadian Women's National Hockey Team uh, will join us to talk all things Montreal Canadiens and NHL. I do want to get to our question of the day, which is uh, can be found on Twitter at Joey Alfieri and at TSN 690. Who should Shea Weber be paired with next? Your options are Victor Mete, Jeff Petrie, Alexander Romanov, or you can reply other uh, with your answer. We've got a lot of, uh, of, uh, lot of answers coming in, and I'm a little surprised to see what the results are right now. Uh, like I said, you can find this poll at Joey Alfieri. Uh, Alexander Romanov is leading the way at 52%, and clearly 
The Canadians tried that earlier on in the week, and they didn't think he was ready for it. I like Romanov. I don't know that he's ready for that either, but he's leading the way at 52% right now. Uh, Victor Mete comes in second at 21%, which is interesting because he can't even get into the lineup over Xavier Ouellette right now, and the Canadians have an optional skate this morning, and Arturi Lekinen and Mete are both on the ice for the optional, and Dom Ducharme won't be talking until 5, so we won't know of any lineup changes uh, for sure until 5 o'clock, but if Lekkonen and Mete are on the ice for the optional, that would probably indicate that they're not going to play, but you never know. Weird things have happened. Um, so Mete's at 21%, even though he can't get into the lineup, and I've seen where some people are suggesting that the Canadians should put Jeff Petrie and Shea Weber together. Uh, Petrie is at 12%, but other is at 15%. And I'm falling into that other category. Uh, I'm with those people. And we have some replies. Uh, you can text us at 11690 right now. Uh, Fred weighing in says, I'd put him with Kulak. Ideally, trade for Dunn before the deadline and go with Kulak, Petrie, Dunn, Weber, Edmondson, Romanov. Uh, Jeff, having a little fun, says uh, he wants to play Weber with Sir Savard. Um Robert says, maybe Weber's the one that needs to pick up his game. Perhaps he's injured because he can't seem to handle the puck. Uh, Ernie says, I would put Romanov with Weber, but give them second pair minutes. Petrie and Edmondson should be the top pairing. Um, yeah, uh, there's some people that want to see Kale Fleury get a call up. There's a few people voting in with, uh, with Fleury. Some people want Matthias Ekholm from Nashville, uh, but Kulak is actually getting quite a bit of love, and I'm I'm pleasantly surprised to see that people agree with me there because I've been talking about this all week, and Kulak and Petrie have looked good together. They played well together in the bubble, and they've since they've been back together uh, earlier this week when uh, when Edmondson was taken off that pairing and and put with Weber, uh, Kulak and Petrie have been fine. That's not the issue. Petrie. Uh, Kulak looks as comfortable as he's been all season. The thing is, I just I don't think that Edmondson and Weber, those styles of of play or those the way those two guys play, I don't know that they mesh well together. I'd like to see somebody who can carry the puck, who's not afraid to jump into the rush, jump into the offensive zone, um, and and create scoring chances for his team that way play with Weber. I think that's the play here. And I know that Sherratt's not that guy either, but they had been struggling too uh, leading up to the Sherratt injury. So I would like to give Kulak that opportunity. And I fully realize that Brett Kulak is a bottom pairing defenseman. Brett Kulak is a good 5-6. So asking him to play, even if you want to call it the quote-unquote second pairing with Shea Weber, that's above... Uh, what he can do long-term. Short-term, do I think he can do it? Yeah, he can probably do it short-term. But that's why I would go that way. So then you can get Edmondson and Petrie together, and we know that that works because that's worked all year. So go back to that. Throw those guys out there and give those guys the big minutes at five-on-five. Five. Let them do the heavy lifting that way. And then if you experiment, listen, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but uh, I had the number. I saw it on uh, naturalstatric.com uh, going into the third period last night. And the Canadians did play a, third, a good third period. Um, but Edmondson and Weber were on for the most high danger chances against through 40 minutes. And I think that was obvious if you were watching. They struggled and it just it doesn't look like that's going to work. So 
I'm curious if tonight with a short turnaround, uh, no full morning skate, obviously you're not able to practice. So do they just leave the pairings as is? I, that's what I would. That's what I think they do. Uh, but Romanov and Wallet isn't, it's not what I want to see out of the third pairing either. So I, I honestly thought that Mete would get another opportunity to play tonight. But like I said, it doesn't look like that's going to happen if you go just on the, uh, on the uh, optional this morning. But the defense needs some type of shakeup because through, I don't want to say through 40 minutes, but through, you know, if you t- remove that early part of the first period, uh, I thought the defense overall struggled outside of uh, Kulak and Petrie. So maybe you want to give, you know, Petrie somebody else, but I would just go back to Edmondson Petrie and I'd try to figure it out. I'd just go next man up with Shea Weber. And yes, Shea Weber needs to play better. There's no doubt about that. I think the grind of this season is is definitely weighing on him. We know about all the injuries that he's gone through over the last few years. He's also 35 years old. He's been logging heavy minutes since the beginning of time. And so he needs to be better. There, there's no way around that. I'm not sugarcoating it. I'm not saying that the captain's been great because he hasn't. But I think you want to at least give him somebody who complements his steady, conservative approach. That's what I would be looking to do tonight. Again, uh, Dominic Ducharme will meet the media uh, at 5 o'clock and they'll get to lineup changes. I think, based on what we saw uh, at the optional this morning, that Carey Price coming in for Jake Allen, who I'm starting to feel really bad for, uh, is going to be the uh, the only change that the Canadians make. It's Saturday Sports on TSN 690. Joey Alfieri and Jimmy G uh, were with you till 1 o'clock. And a lot of NFL teams have spent some serious cash and free agency over the last week. What are the three best signings of the offseason so far? Former NFL scout Russ Landy will break it down for us on Saturday Sports on TSN 6. Welcome back to Saturday Sports on TSN 690. Joey Alfieri with you till 1 o'clock. And we will be talking more Montreal Canadiens a little bit later on in the show. We will be talking a little CF Montreal and Canadian men's national team soccer as well with Paul Vance uh, just after noon. Uh, but right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show. He's the director of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, and he's a former NFL scout as well, Russ Landy. Russ, what's going on? How are you? I'm doing great, Joey. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for jumping on with us. And I figured I'd uh, I'd pick your brain because I know that when I talk to you about football in general, uh, I'm smarter for it at the end of the conversation. So uh, I know that our audience appreciates your insight as well. So it was a big week this week. A lot of teams spent a lot of big money. Uh, before we get into the specific signings uh, or the specific signings that I'm going to ask you about, um, what are maybe three of the deals in free agency that jumped out at you this week that you really liked? Well, you know, although it's getting a lot of uh, bad publicity, I actually like what the Bears did bringing in Indy Dalton. Um, obviously, they probably would have liked to have gone and gotten a bigger name or, or, or a star like a Russell Wilson. But Andy's been a professional quarterback, played at a high level, took the Bengals to the playoffs a number of years. So he may not be a frontline elite guy, but for a team that just needs consistency and solid play to be a playoff mm-hmm. team again, I think it was a, an underrated signing. I like bringing him in. Um, I like what the Chiefs did, bringing in Joe Tooney. Um, yep. He's a guy that's been a versatile lineman in the NFL, although they had to pay a high price tag. When you lose two linemen like Eric Fisher and Mitchell Schwartz, getting a guy like Tooney, bringing him back, and obviously Montreal 
native uh, Laurent Duvernay Tardif will probably be returning next year mm-hmm. after opting out for COVID this past season. So Tooney Tardif coming back that's gonna that's gonna really help the Chiefs make up for the loss of those two tackles. So I think it's really those two signings to me stood out as really great deals, um, and I really think a great deal for the player, not so much for the team, is Allen Robinson with the Bears. He ran as soon as they gave him the franchise tag <laughs> and signed that deal because with every team having to worry about cutting salary because the salary cap went down, he's getting way more than almost any receiver hitting the free agent market because they franchise tagged him. So he ran in and signed that, and he got his money, and he provides a great target for Andy Dalton in his first year with the Bears. So I think it's, it's been a good week for the Bears, even though they haven't gotten much publicity. Yeah, I, I, okay, I, I, will t- I want to tackle those one by one. So with the Dalton signing, you know, I'm with you, Russ. I get it. I think the fans in Chicago had this expectation uh, because of the, the, you know, the, the talk around Deshaun Watson potentially landing there via trade or Russell Wilson. So when the expectation is built up by the media – uh, to that level, and then you end up settling for Andy Dalton. I think that's where a lot of the disappointment comes in. But I like Dalton, and I like the deal. I think it's the money is really reasonable, and it's on a one-year deal. So if ever Houston and Seattle decide to make a move after next year, you're still in the hunt for one of those elite quarterbacks if you want to make a trade for them. Well, exactly. I mean, it doesn't lock them into anything. It gives them a veteran quarterback who's familiar with some of their coaches there, so he understands what they're going to be asking him to do on offense. He's a smart decision-maker, which was part of the problem they had last year. Is It wasn't just not throwing the ball well. It wasn't always making the right decision. Andy won't do that. Andy will make the right decision. He'll play efficiently. He'll avoid mistakes. And not only do they have the option to jump back in on a veteran quarterback for a trade, what if they chose to take a guy in the first round this year? If a guy slid to them in the first round that they thought was an elite guy, what better mentor than Andy to sit there and teach that young man to be a professional? So makes a lot of sense to me. Andy's as good a person and as good a guy in the locker room as you could ever hope to have there with sort of younger guys around He's the director of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, and he's a former NFL scout, Russ Landy, joining us on Saturday Sports on TSN 690. Um, so, Russ, you mentioned the Allen Robinson going back to Chicago. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster took uh, reportedly less money on a one-year deal to go back to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, Will Fuller got a one-year deal to go to uh, the Miami Dolphins. It's going to be around $10 million when it's all said and done. Uh, when you look at the wide receiver market, did it kind of play out the way you had anticipated? Yeah, it did. I mean, once the salary cap, once they said, hey, it's going to be about 185, which is what I got told back in July by a bunch of NFL people, Mm -hmm. once you knew that, you knew no receiver was really going to break the bank because teams are going to be cutting salary just to get under the cap. So no one's going to be able to pay a receiver $16, $17 million. So guys like Schuster, signing back with the Steelers makes a ton of sense because not only does it provide him a chance to be in comfortable surroundings, and get a decent salary. But he can be really productive this year, and when the salary goes back up next year, especially with these new money, the TV contracts that are just being signed, if he goes out and has another big year, next year he can hit the gold mine. So it's right where I thought it would be. Um, 
you can't pay receivers a ton of money when your salary caps are getting slashed. Yeah. So um, on the Will Fuller front, we know that he was having a real good year. He was managed to stay healthy in Houston last year. He was slapped with that six-game suspension uh, for performance-enhancing drugs or whatever he tested positive for. Uh, there's one game left on that suspension, so he's not going to play week one uh, with the Dolphins. But what do you think of Fuller landing in Miami? I like. I think he's a great guy it's just, or a great player, uh, but it's just a question of being able to stay healthy, and that's something he hadn't been able to do before last year. Yeah, I think it's a real good value signing because it's not only for him health, it's also last year was the first year where you really didn't see every game one big drop. The whole early part of his career, you would see this player who had so much talent, but every game there'd be one drop that would you'd, you'd want to wring his neck over. Yeah. Well, this past year, he did the job. He caught the ball. He was much more consistent. So I think bringing him in to Miami, which is obviously a team on the rise, and with a quarterback like Tua, who's still young and developing, giving him a guy who can pull the defense apart, he can get behind it and stretch it, that's going to not only provide a deep threat for Tua, but it's going to open up all his targets underneath. So, yeah, Will Fuller going there, great move. They're getting an opportunity to also get a test run at him, look at him for a year, see how he blends in, see how he fits. To me, it's a smart move. And uh, speaking of uh, one-year deals, or sort of a one-year deal, Kyle Van Noy, uh, the edge rusher, he signed that long-term deal in Miami last year, but uh, he was one and done, and he's back with the Patriots now after being cut by the Dolphins. Uh, They also added Matt Judon uh, from the Baltimore Ravens. That was a big signing for the New England Patriots as well. So how do you feel about the job New England did particularly? I'll ask you about what they did offensively in a second, but defensively getting Van Noy back from the Dolphins and then adding Judon, do you think they'll be able to get after the quarterback with a little more regularity? Well, I think there's no doubt that they can get after the quarterback more regularly. I think the hard part for me with this, with everything that New England did, both defensively and offensively, is if you look at the history of the Patriots, They've always been a team that went after free agents on the second and third wave, getting guys on one- and two-year deals for real bargain. Now they said, we're putting a foot down, and we are spending a ton of money. And I like Matthew Don. I think he's a tremendous player. But any time you spend this much money on a player like that coming to a new system, there is some risk. He's a very talented kid, and the good thing they get is super competitive, a drive to succeed. But it's a huge risk when you hand out so many big money deals. I also find it funny, a lot of the chatter, naturally, when they signed the two tight ends, Jonu Smith and uh, Hunter Henry, everyone kind of had the flashback to the Gronk, uh, Aaron Hernandez days. Uh, there's one thing missing, though, from that era, and it's Tom Brady. And so I don't know. Do you think they'll be able to run a similar offense with Cam Newton under – well, not even under center, but with Cam Newton at quarterback? They'll do a lot of the same things in terms of the alignments and stuff. A lot's going to really come down to is Cam back to being Cam in terms of that one-and-a-half, two-game stretch early in the season where he looked phenomenal, and then it sort of fell apart after the COVID situation when he got Mm -hmm. sick and had to miss games, and he said he never felt the same again. If he's back to playing like he did for that game-and-a-half, then I can see them doing a lot of unique things with those tight ends. Um, the Smith kid is a really intriguing kid. He's so athletic. He's explosive. I honestly am not uh, overly excited about the Hunter Henry signing. I think he's a guy that is a tremendous athlete but struggles to stay on the field, and I think he'll be a guy that underachieves there in New England. But their offense, I think they're going to do some unique things, some good things, as long as Cam is healthy and back to what he was prior to that whole COVID situation. 
Former NFL scout Russ Landy joining us on Saturday Sports with Joey Alfieri on TSN 690. Um, listen, let's uh, let's go. I want to go back to another quarterback. I was a little bit surprised where he landed. I love the fit for the team. Not sure I love it for the player. Uh, but with Mitch Trubisky, how surprised were you that it was Buffalo? And why do you think he chose Buffalo? Well, I think it's, to me, I think Buffalo is a great spot for him because we all know, hey, he's not the starter. Josh Allen is the guy. But I think Mitch looks at it and like, hey, I came into the league with a lot of hype, but I had a lot of things I needed to work on, and I have not really improved a ton. And I think he looks right down the road and sees Josh Allen came in with not the same issues, but some mm-hmm. issues in terms of being an athletic guy who struggled with consistency in college. And look at what the coaching staff in Buffalo has done. They've tweaked his mechanics. They've helped him become more consistent with his reads and making the correct decision. I think Mitch looks at it like, hey, I get to take a year off from being the guy. I get to learn from this coaching staff. And if the opportunity comes up for four or five games or something good to injury, I may get a chance to go out there and just play it lights out because I'll have been in this program for an offseason, been coached really well. So I think it's a great spot for Mitch. I'm really excited to, to see if this can be what helps him become a quality starter because he's a great kid who works hard. Tons of physical talent, but it's just never clicked for him consistently. I love the fit of him in Buffalo as a backup for a year. It, it kind of reminds me of the old Anthony Calvillo situation, right? It started a bunch of years in Las Vegas and in Hamilton, and then uh, in the late 90s, he had an opportunity to either be the starter in Saskatchewan or he came here and played the backup to Tracy Ham. He spent a, you know, a year or two as a backup and then was really able to flourish and it's interesting because I love the fit for Buffalo. I just I thought he would go somewhere where he'd be able to play or at least compete for the job a little bit more. But I, I totally get what you're saying. Sometimes you just need a reset. Yeah, and I think a lot of times if you, some guys say, oh, it's a reset. I'm going to a new city to be the starter. Well, that's not really a reset because you're being thrown right back into the fire. Yeah. Whereas this year, you can Mitch will get the chance to not only be coached, which he was coached by the Chicago guys, worked them hard and did a lot of things, but they're going to really get a chance to sort of coach him on the fundamentals, and he doesn't have to go into a game two days after he learned something and try to stay within those things he learned. He gets a whole season, whole off-season, whole season of working on his fundamentals, learning, prepping, practicing, but not having to go out there in games right away. So I think it's a great situation for him. It wouldn't shock me if he ends up playing well in the preseason in limited exposure. And then next year, some team rolls the dice on him as a starter because he's such a good kid and works so hard. There's a lot to like if he can improve a little bit in consistency. All right, Russ, I've got one more for you. I want uh, I want you to put your prediction hat on, and I know you talk to a lot of people around the NFL. What sense are you getting? Like, where's Russell Wilson going to end up playing this year, and where's Deshaun Watson going to end up playing this year? You know, I, I, maybe I'm the only crazy one, or maybe me and Andrew Brandt, I'm a former executive with the Packers. I really think both those guys are going to stay put. I don't think see, that Russell Wilson really wants to stay put, but I think the reality is that Pete Carroll, John Schneider, they understand that the NFL is a quarterback game, and they're going to do what they have to do to calm things down and get Russell to be excited about being back there. And I think in Houston, I think it's just you have a 25-year-old franchise quarterback who, despite these things that have come out recently, he is viewed as a model citizen, a great leader, a high-character guy. You don't just let those guys walk out of your building. 
So I'd be very surprised if Houston moved on from Watson, even though I know everybody is saying it's going to happen. I just think, to me, if you're a new GM and a new head coach, you're out of your mind to let a 25-year-old franchise quarterback walk out your door because then you have to start chasing a quarterback. And as you know from following the NFL for years, you start chasing, you can end up like Jacksonville and Cleveland did for over a decade having no quarterback, which means having no winning season. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like we always say, uh, Russ, if you have more than one quarterback, you have none. And so finding that one guy is uh, is tough to do. Thanks for taking the time, Russ. Have a, have a great rest of the offseason, and hopefully we can chat again real soon. You got it, Joey. Thanks, as always, for having me on, and reach out anytime. Absolutely. That's Russ Landy. He's uh, currently the director of U.S. scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, and he's a former NFL scout as well uh, for, for many, many years, and they're – there's uh, there's not many people who have more football, uh, pro, college, uh, at every level experience than Russ does, so definitely appreciate uh, picking his brain. It is Saturday Sports on TSN 690, and uh, March is College Basketball month, month, so we're playing a college sports edition of... Jimmy, are you ready for it? Stump the G. I've got the questions. You can play along at home by texting us at 11690. We're going to make sure we send Jimmy G packing with a big loss. Welcome back. It's Saturday Sports on TSN 690. I'm Joey Alfieri with you till 1 o'clock. Jimmy G is with us until noon, and uh, Matthew O'Hayan will be tagging in for Jimmy in just a few minutes. Uh, Before we get to our college edition of Stump the G, I do want to revisit our Saturday sports question of the day, which you can find on Twitter at Joey Alfieri and at TSN 690. It's uh, who should Shea Weber be paired with next? Your options are Mete, Petrie, Romanov, or other. And uh, many of you have uh, gone with other. 13% of you have. Uh, The majority are going with Romanov, though, at 54%. And Victor Mete is in second at 21%. Again, if you're just joining us, the Canadians have had an optional morning skate. And uh, Victor Mete and Arturi Lekkinen were participating in that. So it seems unlikely that they would do that and play tonight. Uh, But Dom Ducharme will be speaking to the media uh, just after 5 o'clock. So uh, your options again in the uh, who should Che Weber be paired with next poll question, Mete, Petri, Romanov, or other, and uh, you can find that on Twitter at Joey Alfieri. Jimmy G, uh, last time you were on the show, Jimmy, was a couple weeks ago, and again, uh, Stump the G is sweeping the nation. Uh, there's no other segment that gets me more feedback on Twitter or the text message board than this one. And I thank and- our texters. And yes, and you. So I think you went three for three I last did. time, and I caught some grief uh, because there were easy questions. To be fair, yes, many many people think that I went too easy on you. I so, thought so too. They were very oh, wow. easy questions. Okay, you know, great. the only pitcher to win a World Series MVP in the 1970s was Raleigh Fingers, Hall of Famer. Yeah, that was I think you got question. that on the second try, though. No, no, I got it the first try. Did you? Yeah, okay. it was easy. Uh, so look, it's the college sports edition. It's March Madness. Uh, I, I love March Madness. The The first two days of March Madness are the greatest. I, I rather watch the first two days than the final. Just, I, I mean, like yesterday afternoon, uh, working uh, Melnick's show, I had uh, one eye on Melnick and one eye on Oral Roberts and Ohio State. And you just, you live 
for those upsets. So I figured, why not do a college sports edition of Stump the G? I will name the prominent athlete, Jimmy G, and you will tell me where they went to school. Again, if you want to play along with Jimmy G, uh, Jimmy can't get any help, though. Uh, so Jimmy closed the text message the board. are all closed. Fantastic. So you can play as well at 11690. Uh, the first one, this is right in your wheelhouse. I'm, I'm throwing you a, a, this is a lob ball, Jimmy. Christos Chelios. He had to have gone to Wisconsin. The correct answer is the University of Wisconsin. Very good, Jimmy Perfect. G. Perfect. Thank you Way very much. Way to go. It was a Big East school, Northeast. Yeah, that that's I fine. Knew. Plus, he's Greek, so he's I figured Greek. you Where would know would that. Go, exactly. Yeah, you, you probably have a bunch of posters of him in your room still. I don't. I used did, to. I knew you I did. I don't have them anymore. I knew you did. You and Simon Salik is Absolutely. probably sold out. You bought up all the posters. Uh, all right, here we go. Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. Where did he go to school? I believe he went to the University of Southern California, I believe, USC. Or he went to Alabama. He's from Alabama. Yeah. It's one of you the want to, uh You want to give yourself the buzzer twice on that one, or oh, should, okay. should I, I just I'm go? Wrong. And... So where Incorrect. was he from? Where did he go to school? Arizona State Arizona University. State. Uh, did you know that? Or had you, did I you thought forget? it was a USC. It is not USC. Uh, it was Arizona State. So basically what you're telling me is, it all comes down to this. Yes. And this One is a for two, two. I got to go this, two for three to win or else I lose. And this is a two-part question, which is why I saved it for the end. And I'm not giving you partial grades, so you're not getting half a grade. It's either you get this or you don't. Let's try it. Where did Magic Johnson and Larry Bird go to school? Two different schools, obviously. Well, they face each other in the 19th yes. This is an easy question. Okay, the reason go ahead. is because they face each other in the championship game in 1979, yeah. which is still the most watched college basketball game of all time. Okay. Michigan State yeah. and Indiana State. Not oh, Indiana. I thought he I was going to get you on the state. He did, he did join Indiana for a couple of weeks, and then he just yeah. left the Bobby Knight's program. He went to Indiana State across the street. Jimmy, I thought I thought I was going to get you on the Indiana question, State. Though. Yeah, that but I thought I was going to get you on the Indiana State. Yes, but that was a classic rivalry. That's I why know it was. Not only in the NBA, but the fact that they faced each other in the championship game before joining the NBA. All so right, that's Jimmy. the reason it was easy. Thank I'm you very much. I'm giving you a round of applause. I'm uh, clapping I'll take the, the victory microphone. with an asterisk because it was an easy question. So do you, do you think our listeners, this audience, is going to come after me again for the, the questions being too easy? No, because uh, going USC, uh, Alabama, uh, Arizona State, for Reggie Jackson, that was a difficult question. Yeah, I'm and surprised the Wisconsin you didn't know that one. for Chris Chalios, that was more of a guess. I know he went to the Big East, but I wasn't sure which school. It wasn't the Ivy Leagues. That's only <laughs> that's only for the that's only for the JP O'Connors. No, no, that's Jimmy. only for the great JP O'Connors of the world. Wow, and look we at love that. JP. Now you're done for the show, and Thank you, you just you went with a parting shot at Chris Chelios. I no, think no, that, that was, was a compliment to JP O'Connor. We both love. Yeah, JP. but you Come put on. the. I do love JP O'Connor, but we you all took, love that's JP. a parting shot at Chris Chelios. Yeah, I guess so. That's it. Apologies that's, to the great twenty-four. Have a great rest of your Saturday, Jimmy. Thank you very much, Joe. CF Montreal practices were open for the first time in over a year this week. Mount Royal. Soccer's managing editor Paul Vance was there multiple times. He'll tell us what the team looks like heading into the season. This is Saturday Sports. Joey Alfieri on TSN 690.